This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Amy Spitalnik, CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. Amy, what is the Jewish Council for Public Affairs? Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Um, JCPA, the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, is a nearly 80-year-old organization that is really rooted in the recognition that Jewish safety is strongest in communities where we have deep relationships with our neighbors, where we have inclusive democracy, and where those lines of communication and relationship are open, all in service of the sort of inclusive, pluralistic society we know uh, Jews have really been safest in throughout history. Okay, in English, what is the (laughs) JCPA? So what this means in practice is that we work with 125 Jewish community relations councils around the country. Uh, empowering, engaging them, and working with national partners uh, as well on building those sorts of cross-community relationships on issues related to democracy and fighting anti-Semitism and fighting other forms of hate, recognizing that at this moment we are seeing unprecedented threats to our community's safety, unprecedented threats to our democracy, and that to mobilize effectively against all of them requires building coalitions across communities Um, to do that as strongly and effectively as possible. Okay, how has your job and your efforts changed from before October 7th and after October 7th? So, you know, I started this job full-time on September 5th, and we knew it was going to be a challenging job regardless. Uh, In my prior work, I had been really focused on fighting extremism, Uh, and increasingly normalized anti-Semitism and white supremacy and other forms of hate. And certainly going into this role, we knew that all of those factors were um, front and center and top of mind for many in the Jewish community and building relationships across community 
were particularly crucial to taking on this crisis. October 7th, of course, only made that more urgent. It has in so many ways put a fine point on just how tenuous this situation is for the Jewish community in America right now, for so many other communities. Um, And it has really created a crisis in which we've seen extremists seek to exploit what's happening in Israel and Gaza to further tear communities apart, make Jews and others feel isolated in this moment, um, and make the sort of cross-community relationships that we know that are at the core of our work at JCPA and core to Jewish safety feel less attainable than ever. Um, And so we have to work infinitely harder to keep these relationships strong, to keep them, frankly, open in the first place right now, um, and ensure that we are not losing sight of all of the threats that we are facing as a community, even as we grapple with the immediate crisis post-October 7th, which, again, in so many ways really just exposed and exacerbated um, so much of, of what we already knew to be true. So why does everybody hate the Jews? <laughs> well, look, it's important to understand anti-Semitism, right? Anti-Semitism is unlike so many other forms of bigotry. It functions as a form of prejudice or bias in and of itself. Um, and that alone, of course, leads to attacks against Jews simply because they're Jews. But unlike other forms of religious or racial or ethnic bigotry, anti-Semitism also operates as an overarching conspiracy theory rooted in lies and tropes about Jewish power and influence. And so because it functions that way, it serves to not just um, operate as, you know, disdain, but actually allows it to apply to virtually any circumstance in which something bad is happening and someone needs to be blamed, right? Whether it is... uh, whether it is, you know, the idea of the changes happening to our country, the demographic changes that some on the far right are seeking to pin on the Jewish community, this idea of Jews will not replace us, or the American government's support for Israel in this moment, which many want to pin on Jewish power and influence rather than necessarily American interests in the region. Um, there needs to be some sort of puppet master or uh, or uh, control someone controlling and pulling the strings. And so the way that anti-Semitism functions in this way, um, as this conspiracy theory, allows it to take root and manifest in so many different circumstances that are in some cases tied to specific ideologies and in other cases totally removed from the ideological spectrum um, and operate simply as... Uh, as these sorts of conspiracy theories targeting Jews. But you know the Jews have all the money. <laughs> if that were true, I don't know, I would have a bigger apartment, I think. But what do you know? These are tropes that you hear on a regular basis. Your job is fighting anti-Semitism. So when someone says, the Jews have all the money, what's the response to that? Well, it's, it's, it's much more complicated than that, right? So we have a number of anti-Semitic tropes that have, according to research from the ADL and others, definitely become more prevalent in recent years. We've seen these increase from a handful, a small percentage of Americans buying into these anti-Semitic tropes 10 years ago 
to a much more significant portion buying into, you know, five, six anti-Semitic tropes at any given time. And so what that tells us is that there has been this sort of normalization of anti-Semitism. In some cases, it manifests in the tropes that you just talked about. And I will say, it's not even necessarily meant maliciously in certain cases, right? Some people are simply saying, some people sort of see these tropes as compliments and how we engage people in understanding that when you talk about Jewish money, when you talk about Jewish power and control, it can easily be perceived or shapeshifted into more explicitly anti-Semitic tropes that further these harmful narratives and that make Jews unsafe. And so what we have seen be most effective in actually addressing some of these are actually one-on-one conversations where we're helping people understand why something like that furthers the broader conspiracy theories and narratives that we know make Jews and, frankly, all of us less safe. Okay, so let's say we're having a one-on-one conversation, and I say, but Jews have all the money. What do you say? That is rooted in long-standing, age-old anti-Semitic tropes related to Jews and power. The historically... Many have tried to pin financial control and other forms of power on the Jewish community as a means to scapegoat the Jewish community for the ills of society. And when we talk about Jews as having all of this control, having all of this money, having all of this financial power, it only seeks to reinforce these tropes and the broader conspiracy theories that they fuel um, making Jews less safe and brought more broadly fueling distrust in our democracy and in our society in a way that makes all of us less safe. But where does it come from? Why does everybody think Jews have all this money? Well, it comes from these age-old anti-Semitic tropes and narratives that have been around for millennia at this point, going back to, uh, you know, to Shylock, going back to and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and everything in between, in which Jews were really painted as uh, as people who used the financial system, who used power to effectively control things, to influence things. And so uh, it is deeply connected to the mani- sort of those millennia-old manifestations of anti-Semitism are deeply connected to what we see today. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to anti-Semitism, but rather it is just manifesting in new specific ways tied to the issues of the moment, whether it be those who are talking about Jewish efforts, again, to change the demographics of our country or to support Israel or to otherwise connect the dots um, to what they believe to be, um, what they believe to be um, the ills of the moment. Okay, if you go back a hundred years ago, blacks and Jews were aligned in America. There's suddenly, well, not suddenly, there was eventually a bifurcation about 50, 60 years ago. What is that tension between black people and Jews about? I would argue that there isn't actually a tension there. Um, There are many who want us to feel like that there is feel like there's a tension there. Um, When in fact, we know societies in which Black people, in which Jewish people are safe, uh, are safer societies for everyone. 
and that the advancement of civil rights, the fight against extremism, against racism, against anti-Semitism are all inextricably linked. And so that there, there are many across the political spectrum who seek to tear communities apart, who think that by pitting our communities against each other, by painting the safety of one community as zero sum, uh, and that the rights, the advancement of any one community comes at the expense of another community, um, it makes it harder for us to actually be in solidarity with one another and advance the broader framework that we know is necessary to all of us being safe. Okay, well, let's cut through the BS. So, subsequent to the war, there were a number of organizations of Black Life Matters that didn't necessarily represent every Black person in America or even everybody in that organization who literally came out in favor of the Palestinians and against the Jews. It's hard to believe that the African Americans and the Jews are aligned under those circumstances. Again, I think that there are extremist voices in specific communities, including some of those statements that you're referencing, that are not reflective of the entire community, that went to extreme positions, positions that I find abhorrent in terms of labeling Hamas as act of terror as an act of resistance, but again, are not representative where the vast majority of the community actually is. Okay, so let's switch. So uh, we had these Black Lives Matters protests across America, across the world, in the wake of what happened in Minnesota. But other than in France the other day, where 100,000 people came to march, we don't see an equivalent march for Jews against anti-Semitism. Why not? I'm headed to D.C. tomorrow for a massive march uh, against anti-Semitism in support of Israel. Uh, and so I expect there will be tens of thousands of people there with me uh, and that they will come from a variety of different communities. Um, it's I mean, there are a lot of people who have shown up in very different ways over the last five weeks. It's very easy to feel like we are isolated and alone right now. And there are very good reasons, too. There are many who are trying to make the Jewish community feel as if there is no one standing with us. Um, and the loudest voices who are spreading that sort of bigotry, including some of the statements that you referenced, are getting outsized attention. But if you actually look at who's showing up from government officials, elected officials, and from the federal, state, and local levels to community partners, there are many people who have actually came, come and stood with the Jewish community, who have spoken out against Hamas's terror attack, who have demanded the release of the hostages, who have specifically called out rising anti-Semitism and hate in this moment. And so what we need to be doing is continuing to empower and amplify those voices that are speaking out for us, that are showing up in allyship in whatever form that takes, in the form of statements, in the forms of showing up at marches and pro-Israel uh, uh, and protests against anti-Semitism, um, in the form of building relationships across communities, recognizing that even in this moment, we are not going to necessarily agree with all of our neighbors about the policy solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but that we can agree that the rising anti-Semitism we're seeing, the ripple effects of this conflict from anti-Semitism to the, uh, the Islamophobia and anti-Arab hate targeting those communities is a crisis for all of us, and we need to be working together to mitigate it. And so... 
there are people who are absolutely showing up. Not nearly as many as some of us would have hoped, but it's important not to lose sight of that because it's precisely what extremists want is to make Jews feel isolated and alone in this moment. What is BDS? BDS is Boycotts, Divestments, and Sanctions of Israel. And who is behind BDS? Just the kids on campus, other people in America? What is delivering its strength? BDS is is more of a movement, so it's hard to say that any one individual or group is behind it. Uh, it uh, there are a number of organizations, students, others who support the BDS movement. As you can imagine, I oppose the BDS movement. Um, it's a tool that some are using to try to effectively put pressure on Israel. Um, when Israel is directly isolated and treated uniquely, treated uh, treated differently than any other country. It, of course, raises specific issues and concerns. Um, And so there are many who, of course, oppose the BDS movement for that reason. Is or is not the BDS movement supported by the Palestinians in ways that are not obvious, both financially in terms of direction? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, Noah Tishby basically says, another commentator in this sphere, that BDS is not as benign as it looks on the surface, that it's an active organization funded and directed by Palestinians in the Middle East. Is that something you agree with? I, I do not know who's funding the BDS movement. This is not my area of expertise. Okay, okay, then let's move on from that. So, why all of this Jew hate and anti-Israel sentiment on college campuses at this time? Well, you know, I I was a student leader when I was in college over 15 years ago at this point. Well, well, slow down, slow down. Where'd you go to college and what exactly did being a student leader mean? So I went to Tufts University in Boston and I was the president of Hillel on campus, the Jewish student organization. Well, let's go back before that. So where did you grow up? I grew up in New York. But New York, New uh, York City, um, the suburbs. I grew up on Long Island. Okay. Uh, although I try to mask my my accent. You do, uh, you do a good out. job of that. Did you grow up in one of the so-called five towns? Not far from there, but not in one of them. Okay, but the reason I bring that up is you grew up in an environment where there was a strong Jewish presence. Absolutely. Look, I grew up in a heavily Jewish area. I was the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, uh, very Jewishly connected, going to synagogue every Saturday. Uh, going to Hebrew school, even after my bat mitzvah, going to what was called Hebrew high school for continuing education. And so even though I went to public school, Jewish education, Jewish engagement was front and center in my life. And so uh, it very much, I think, shaped everything I did, even if I resisted it at times. Uh, And clearly now I'm running a, a Jewish organization. And Perhaps if you had told me decades ago that this is what I would be doing, I might not have believed you, but the ways in which that Jewish upbringing has shaped uh, my my 
path has become pretty clear in recent years. How many kids in the family? I was one of two um, and uh, the older, I'm the older sibling and, uh, and went to school at Tufts. Uh, well, okay. Let me, what does your sibling do? Uh, she works in marketing. So she has nothing professionally. She's not in this sphere. Correct. Uh, she is of course, Jewishly engaged in her own way. Um, but I am the, maybe call it a masochist, the person who decided to, um, become a professional Jew in my day job. <laughs> okay. Your parents, what did your parents do for work? Both my parents were New York City public school teachers, and I think in many ways that really shaped my my outlook on the world as well. Uh, I remember them coming home frustrated with the state of the city. They were in New York City public schools in Queens, and uh, you know, frustrated with funding, frustrated with uh, their contract disagreements that they were having from the city, and it really, in so many ways. Uh, put me on a path in terms of public service and government. Um, and so uh, seeing that firsthand, uh, it really, I think, influenced my outlook on the world, the ways in which government could be a tool for good or for bad, uh, and the impact that in particular local government could have in a, sort of an outsized way on people's lives. And I spent a good portion, I ended up spending a good portion of my career in state and local government, partially because of uh, the impact I saw it have on the day-to-day -day of my own parents' lives, teaching for decades in, public, in the New York City public schools. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs 
because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Okay, you're obviously very dedicated to the cause. Are you an outlier or are you following in the jet stream of your parents? Were they as active and involved going to synagogue Jewish causes as you are? My mom, perhaps more so than my dad. Um, you know, my, my mom's parents were Holocaust survivors. And when they came to the United States and had my mom, I think it was important for them to be Jewishly connected because they were persecuted. They they watched their entire families be killed simply because they were Jewish. And so to come here to a place where they could practice that religion freely uh, and openly um, in whatever form that took felt important. And so that Jewish connection ran, I think, throughout that side of my family um, and directly in many ways sort of shaped how I grew up and uh, the fact that synagogue, that Jewish engagement, that sort of social action side of Judaism was such a big piece of the puzzle. Um, I think, you know, again, it's manifested in different ways for different members of my family. Um, but I think at the end of the day, so much of it feels rooted in our own family history and the need and the desire to feel like we are creating and living a better life here than what my grandparents escaped from not that long ago. I see a stroller in the background would pretend to indicate you have a baby. This <laughs> is audio only. Uh, your significant other, are they Jewish? They're not. Um, but we are um, raising our child Jewish and uh, I think is very, you know, our family has very much, um, I think, been rooted in so many of the values of Judaism um, in shaping how we live our lives, our responsibility to make things better, uh, to leave the world a little better for the next generation. Um, to, you know, everything from the Jewish traditions that are a day-to-day -day part of our lives to, I think, those overarching values. And it has been really meaningful to sort of see that all come together, having our first child and uh, passing that on and experiencing that with them in, in new ways. And who performed the wedding ceremony? Uh, a dear friend of mine from college, who's a rabbi, uh, we were we were on the Hillel student board together. Um, she married us, uh, and it was incredibly meaningful. Um, it is particularly fun to see your friends become rabbis uh, because it it denotes some sort of level of wisdom and expertise, which they absolutely have. But when you knew them when they were nineteen. Uh, it's funny to juxtapose those two things. Okay. I certainly heard from a young age that I should marry a Jewish person. I've been married once the person converted of their own volition. How did you feel when you fell in love with somebody who wasn't Jewish? 
I did not expect to be talking about this. For me, it's always about, you know, how you live your life. Uh, and from I, I don't think that anyone could necessarily argue that I'm not living a Jewish life, given what I've done professionally and given what I'm doing uh, personally. And so for me, it was really about, uh, you know, there was no question there. If this was the person I'm supposed to be with, if they were open to to raising my child, our child Jewish, um, if they were open to um, the Jewish values and practices that were important to me, um, that's all that mattered. And my partner is very much so open to that, engaged in that. You know, we go to Tat Shabbat and all of the the fun things that come with being the parent of a young young Jewish child in New York, and uh, and that has been incredibly meaningful to see. And what does your significant other do for a living? Uh, he work. Uh, he's a longtime journalist uh, who has now moved into um, sort of the tech and anti disinformation space. Okay. The reason I bring all this up is many people believe that there will cease being Judaism on the planet as a result of intermarriage. I even see this in the next generation of my sister's kids. Do you have a take on that? Well, I think we need to be in, you know, we're not going to change the fact that Jews are intermarrying. That is a very real part of the reality of American Jews in particular. The question is, how are we engaging those people and those couples and families so that they stay Jewishly connected? And that could take a variety of it could take the form of religious tradition and practice, the holidays, engaging them through synagogue. It can be engaging through Jewish values on social action and advocacy. Um, it could be making sure that we are just simply creating spaces for intermarried couples, interfaith couples to grapple with the very real questions and challenges that so often come up in those relationships. And so we're never going to stop the fact that that we're never going to stop the fact of intermarriage, particularly here in America. Um, but what we can do is make sure that we are not losing people from being engaged Jewishly because we've made them feel unwelcome in the community simply because they are intermarried. On the other end of the spectrum, there are very orthodox people who are having a lot of children saying that they're saving the religion. But if one pays attention to the media there's a lot of stories that these kids are going to yeshivas, are not fully educated, that in certain communities they're taking over the school boards, they're getting a disproportionate amount of welfare. What is your response to that? How do you know that's not a good image for Jews in general? Look, the Jewish community is remarkably diverse. Um, it includes everyone from Hasidic, Haredi Jews. I live in Brooklyn, which is perhaps one of the most diverse cross-sections of the Jewish community in the world, from Satmars and Hasidic Jews in Williamsburg and Borough Park to Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, unaffiliated Jews. And how we are understanding the fact that this Jewish that the Jewish community is inclusive of all of these different means of practice. Um, that there is not one single type of Jew that is the correct Jew or the right Jew. And in fact, we're seeing deliberate efforts by some, including, uh, I would say, argue politicians who traffic in anti-Semitic tropes to specifically distinguish between good and bad Jews, um, to say that 
some Jews are loyal and good to certain politicians, to the state of Israel or otherwise, and some are not. Um, and that, for me, tells me we have we are. It is more urgent than ever that we take a broad view of what the Jewish tent is and do everything in our power to keep that broad, um, to keep that inclusive, to make sure that we are welcoming people in from a broad array of Jewish backgrounds. That doesn't mean that, of course, we don't need to be ensuring yeshivas are teaching important secular skills and uh, and other uh curriculum. It doesn't mean that there aren't social service needs and challenges that we need to grapple with and um, support the community in addressing. Um, But it is important that we truly, I think, embrace and support the diversity of the Jewish community. There are so few of us in this world um, that we should never be leaving a single person on the table simply because we disagree with how they practice their Judaism. Let's go back to Tufts. I went to college at Middlebury College, small college in Vermont. Now, this is long beyond. Both part of the NESCAC, the New England Small College Athletics. Absolutely. Listen to you. Although the sports were not such a big deal when I went there, they are now. But the reason I mention this is because 45% of the students were from prep schools and growing up in a suburb in Connecticut, although Jews were far from the majority. There was an overall Jewish feeling that I did not feel in college. Certainly, Tufts has more Jews, but to what degree was it a difference going from your enclave on Long Island to Malden, Mass, and being at Tufts? Yeah. Look, for me, it was in so many ways uh, both very similar and deeply different. So in terms of its similarities, I think both Long Island and Tufts have pretty significant Jewish populations. Uh, I used to be a campus tour guide. I believe the percentage I would share on my tours was, Tufts was 27% Jewish at the time I was there. So it was not a small population considering, you know, we are 2% of the American population, 27% of Tufts. And Tufts Hillel, which was the Jewish student group I led, was, I believe, the largest student group on campus at one point, or one of the largest student groups. Um, So it was a community that, Again, I think was quite diverse in terms of the you know religious practice and engagement, um, and uh, in many ways, I think you know aligned with with where I grew up in terms of having a strong and large Jewish community. Um, where it really differed and where it opened my eyes, which was understanding the ways in which everything else I was doing in college, the active citizenship work. I was a political science major. Uh, I spent a year studying in Israel, um, it helped me really connect the dots between the different parts of my identity with my Judaism. Understanding that Judaism wasn't simply, you know, going to synagogue uh, or going to Shabbat services on the weekend, wasn't simply um, celebrating the holidays, but also really doing the hard work of advocacy and active citizenship and engagement, of understanding Israel and the conflict, of being engaged in these issues in a way that, for me, was so eye-opening, having really not spent time learning or thinking about so many of them uh, before then. And so to be able to sort of connect the dots between my Jewish identity and 
my career path, right? My the values that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to live was particularly unique to my experience at Tufts and something I'm deeply grateful for, actually. Okay, so I interrupted you with this backstory. You were talking about being head of Hillel at Tufts. Yes. You know, when I was a student, uh, I graduated over 15 years ago. Um, but when I was a student, it felt like we could actually have constructive conversations about Israel on campus. There wasn't always agreement. Things didn't always end uh, in Kumbaya, but I think we were generally able to have challenging conversations in a way that felt meaningful and constructive. In the years since, it seems like that has gone out the window. College campuses, much like our our uh, politics and society more broadly, have become even more polarized. And in particular, it feels like the ways in which Jewish students or students who support Israel have been isolated on college campuses is one of the greatest symptoms of that. We are seeing just a level of sort of irrational hatred and targeting and isolation of Jewish students related to the Israel conversation that is unlike anything I ever experienced when I was a student and frankly anything that we've seen in a number of the years in between. The last five to six weeks since October 7th have really been a masks off movement where we've seen just vile, vitriolic anti-Semitism manifest in new explicit ways on college campuses under the guise of protesting Israel. This doesn't mean that there isn't very real conversations and debate to have um, and how we best distinguish between people's right to free speech, to criticize the Israeli government, to oppose Israeli, Israel's actions, with actions that are in turn directly targeting the Jewish community simply for being Jewish or holding them accountable for Israel's actions is going to be all the more important in the weeks ahead because we're seeing those lines blurred in so many cases and it's making students unsafe. So what changed to cause this? It's, you know, I've been deep in poll data over the last five or so weeks since October 7th. And every poll and every survey tells us that the biggest issue uh, and the places where we have the most challenge in terms of anti-Semitism, in terms of anti-Zionism, in terms of other issues like that, is less connected to ideology and more connected to age than anything. It's telling us that Gen Z, the generation that has effectively been raised on social media, uh, whether it be TikTok or Instagram or anything else, um, and therefore gets the vast majority of their news from those sites, um, either simply doesn't understand the conflict, doesn't understand the ways in which uh, debate around Israel can and sometimes does morph into anti-Semitism, um, or in some cases actually do believe what they're saying. Um, and so starting to address this requires us to first understand what the problem is, which is that this very age-specific ignorance and, in some cases, vitriol um, 
that is unique to a specific generation that has, again, been raised almost exclusively on social media in a way that is different than any of the generations before. And so addressing it, I think, first requires us to understand that. Um, as opposed to trying a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to countering anti-Semitism that for so long we've been using. And so what might we do? Well, there's a lot that we can do. I think one, differentiating and understanding the complexity of this, right? So there are those who are actually anti-Semitic. There are those who are actually defending Hamas's terror attack. Um, But for the vast majority of people, it's rooted less so in maliciousness and more so in ignorance. And so education, education actually matters. There have been a number of surveys that that have shown that if you actually educate people, if you share some basic facts about the conflict, about the history of Israel and the Palestinians, Um, It actually moves the needle on helping them understand what's happening um, and reduce some of the polarized biases that we're seeing. Uh, I think it also requires us to step back and provide more structural solutions. Um, Media and digital literacy, so much of what is flying around on social media is rooted in disinformation and hate and extremism. And if we are not actually teaching kids, teaching educators and schools and parents how to engage on social media, how to teach our kids to engage on social media in a critical way that's able to actually understand what's real and what's not, what's intended to be incendiary and what is actually facts, um, this is only going to continue. So there are some very specific tools that are out there, tools from places like um an organization I'm on the board of, the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, which is a mouthful um, at American University, specifically intended to help people inoculate their kids and their students to some of the hate online. Um, Tools from places like the Western State Center and the Southern Poverty Law Center focused on this. Specific bills and other policy solutions aimed at requiring um, schools to be teaching media and digital literacy. And so we've been grappling with a crisis of extremism and hate and disinformation on social media long before October 7th. But I think October 7th in so many ways ripped off the Band-Aid and made crystal clear how that is manifesting, particularly among younger Americans. And we're seeing it play out more than anything on college campuses right now. So what are some of the falsehoods you encounter and what are the truths these people should be aware of? Well, you know, a big narrative right now is this idea of Israel as a colonizer, right? We see this in so many different places. And what that presupposes is a few things. It it suggests that first, Israel and the Jewish people have no connection to the land when we know that the Jewish people have had deep connection to the land of Israel for millennia. Uh, And that is specifically why Israel was formed, where it was formed. Um, It also fundamentally uh, misunderstands who the Israeli people are. Israel is comprised of people from, of Jews from all over the world, as well as Arabs, Bedouins, and others, um, including um, Jews who were refugees from Arab countries, 
from African countries. Um, and so, so much of this idea sort of the, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this idea of trying to apply American dynamics of racism and white supremacy to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of what the conflict is and what the history is. Um, and again, the data tells us that when we actually step back and begin to educate people about this, to share that history, to share, uh, you know, who the Israeli people are, um, it helps people recognize that that framework might not actually apply here. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Okay. So there have been wars throughout history. In my lifetime and my studies, I've never seen a country attacked where so many people say, don't fight back. I don't think that would be the case if it weren't the Jews. What do you think? Well, look, this gets into much deeper and more convoluted questions about Israel and its, and its history that we probably, uh, than we probably have time for here. Um, but look, I think that that two things are true, right? There 
has absolutely been the ways in which Israel has been disproportionately targeted and attacked, both in terms of the actual attacks on Israel um, and then on in the international community's reaction to it, the disproportionate attention directed at Israel um, that in certain places can actually be rooted in anti-Semitism or at least anti-Zionism. And similarly, or rather on the flip side, is the fact that at the end of the day, the only solution here is a political solution. Um, Israel has an absolute right to defend itself. I support Israel in defending itself right now. And I also know that down the road, eventually, the only solution to this conflict is one that involves two states living side by side, that is reached through a political peace agreement, um, because there is no military solution to this conflict. Hamas needs to be uprooted. Hamas needs to be held accountable for its barbaric terror attack. And long-term, we will still need a political solution. And so how we are holding all of that complexity, how we are both simultaneously defending Israel's right to defend itself um, following this barbaric terror attack and not losing sight of the very real need for a long-term political solution if the Israeli people and the Palestinian people are ever going to be safe and ever going to live in peace um, is crucial here. Okay. Even from the formation of Israel in the 40s, the Palestinians were offered their own state. There have been efforts to create a two-state solution, even in the last couple of decades, multiple times. In each case, it was the Palestinians who rejected that offer. And we hear this statement, which is now being populated throughout the world from the river to the sea, which means the eradication of Israel. So, when the war began, my inbox said from people, I want peace. I want a two-state solution. And I agree with you, each people having their own state would be the best of circumstances. But so far, we have one side who does not desire that. Look, there's no other choice. I don't think we have, there's no solution for the long term in which a single, we're having a single state leads to Jewish safety or to any of the self-determination both people need. And so at the end of the day, the only option is two states, one Israeli and one Palestinian living side by side in peace and security. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean that there are comparable partners for peace in any direction. Um, But it does mean that we have no other choice. A one state solution would either be Uh, given the population that exists, either an anti-democratic state or a non-Jewish state. And if we want a Jewish and democratic homeland, the only option is, is two states. Okay, let's go underneath that. Let's go more micro. So you have all these people, especially on college campuses. I want peace. Now, some of them want Israel eradicated. And I want a two-state solution. But as a practical matter, Hamas entered Israeli land, killed four digits worth of people. And let me put it a little bit differently. Let's go all the way back. For those of us who are older than you are, 
We lived through the 67 war, six-day war. All of a sudden, that was the beginning of the legend of invincibility of the uh, Israelis. Then we had 72 in Munich at the Olympics. We had the 73 war, which lasted much longer. But subsequent to that, there was constant burnishing of the image of Mossad. Okay? So, since there hasn't been anything of this significance or this volume in decades, there's certainly been actions in Lebanon and what's going on in the West Bank, people see the Israelis as almighty aggressors. Yet, we have this uh, terrorist group, Hamas, based in uh, the Gaza Strip, who say they will never stop fighting. So, as a practical matter, what should the Israelis do now? Well, I think you're getting, there's a lot there. So, I think there's the long history, and then there's the specific dynamics of this moment. And I think there was a specific New York Times story last week where Hamas did an interview saying specifically that their goal is constant war. And so, for many, that just underscores the need to actually uproot and destroy Hamas. That doesn't change the fact that Israel, for example, has an obligation to protect Palestinian civilian lives, that when Hamas, of course, t- does things to put Palestinian civilian lives in harm's way, that makes that even harder. Um, but it's important that we not lose sight of this complexity, right? That this is intentionally what Hamas wants here. They want a constant state of war. And therefore, Israel has a right and, frankly, a responsibility to do something about that. And at the same time, it doesn't change its own obligations to protect Palestinian civilian lives, however possible. And so what's in, what we need to be conveying is all of that complexity. I think the president, President Biden, has done a phenomenal job conveying that complexity, making clear what he expects, making clear his deep support for Israel and its right to defend itself, even while cautioning about its responsibilities to protect civilian lives. Um, and so too must we hold that complexity in talking to people about this, this conflict and make clear that we are separating Hamas from the Palestinian people, that they are not one and the same, that Hamas is not the future of the Palestinian people, um, and that they in so many ways have put Palestinian lives directly in harm's way as a result of their brutal terror attack. What do you say to the people calling for a ceasefire? Look, I don't understand how we could have a ceasefire with an organization that has made crystal clear as recently as just a few days ago that their goal is constant war with Israel. First, there are still nearly 240 hostages, babies, children, grandparents, who are being held in Gaza and have been held there for over five weeks. Um, These include not just Israelis, but Americans as well as people from a variety of countries. Uh, And so um, first and foremost, we need the hostages released. Second of all, Hamas has made very clear what their intent is, which is a state of constant war. Uh, And so there needs to be both a path forward that addresses the humanitarian concerns in Gaza, but that doesn't simply leave Israel susceptible and open to repeated attacks from Hamas, which is precisely what they have made clear is their goal. 
And so, again, we so often see this conflict in black and white terms, ceasefire or no ceasefire, um, when in actuality, there are ways to both address the humanitarian con uh, conditions, protect Palestinian lives however possible, while still ensuring that a terrorist organization that murdered and abducted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people is being held accountable and those people are, and the hostages are hopefully being freed. Okay, let's shift back to our nation. So what we've noticed since October 7th is a schism in the Democratic Party from what is labeled the far left to the mainstream. We even had a member of Congress who was censured over her pro-Palestinian comments. How does one bring the Democratic Party together on this issue? I would argue that the Democratic Party is actually pretty united on this issue, and there's a couple voices who have been the outliers. But first and foremost, the leader of the party, President Biden, his moral clarity has been unbelievable in the last five weeks. I was part of the initial meeting at the White House with the president and others in the days after October 7th. He spoke not just with deep moral clarity, but from a deeply personal place, making clear that this matters to him personally, speaking about how he brings his kids and his grandkids to Dachau to see the horrors of the Holocaust firsthand and make them understand never again our obligation to fight anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And so the leader of the Democratic Party has been unbelievably clear in his allyship and solidarity with the Jewish people, in his support for Israel at this dire moment, and I think, again, in exhibiting this sort of moral clarity that we so desperately need. And we've seen that from a huge amount of elected officials across the spectrum. Um, and so while there are some specific voices that are certainly not aligned with that vision, it is not where the vast majority of Democrats are uh, or the vast majority of Americans are. And so it's easy to feel like there are many against us in this moment. The loudest voices tend to get outsized impact, outsized attention on social media uh, and outsized criticism, rightfully so. Um, but it's, it's crucial that we not lose sight that the vast majority of our country's leaders have been strongly and clearly standing with the Jewish community in this deeply painful and traumatic moment. Okay, uh, within a year, we're going to have a presidential election. Although only six states are really going to count, there are polls that indicate Trump is doing well in those six states. And people on the left will say, well, if Trump gets elected, democracy is in question. So it is a 1% or a very small percentage of people who will ultimately decide these, this election. So people have to A, want to vote. B, who will they vote for? So I agree with you that generally elected people in Washington are behind the Israelis on this, but there is a significant sentiment amongst the population who are not. Well, again, I think it's important to actually distinguish what we're talking about here because the vast majority of Americans actually really complex views on this. I think we don't give people enough credit but if you look at the poll data, the vast majority of Americans actually support Israel. Um, they believe that Israel has a right to defend itself. 
And they are also concerned that, for example, Israel is not doing enough to protect Palestinian civilians. And so they're able to hold all of those complex thoughts at the same time. And it speaks to the importance of having that nuance, having that uh, that complexity in how we're addressing this conflict, um, because that's actually where the vast majority of people are. Um, and so, again, it's really easy to feel like those loudest voices are dominating the conversation. But every single poll, every single survey I've seen, and I've been deep in these over the last few weeks, tells us that um we are not alone in this moment, and we have to do a lot of work to ensure that remains the, the case, um, but that people are showing up, and they're showing up not simply in support of Israel, but perhaps even more importantly, showing up for the Jewish community at a time when the ripple effects of this conflict are translating to very real anti-Semitism here at home. Okay, you mentioned earlier the reasons why we can't have a ceasefire. New York Times came out for a ceasefire. They continue, that's the position of the paper on the editorial page, they continue to print pro-ceasefire opinion pieces and almost none that's saying we shouldn't have a ceasefire. I hear from Jews saying we should have a ceasefire. So yes, we might have universal, universal is too strong, we might have a majority agreement that Israel uh, should be able to exist and defend itself. But I'm also seeing people who are afraid to say that there shouldn't be a ceasefire. I see in my inbox, people say, don't use my name. They don't want to go on record. If I say there shouldn't be a ceasefire, my the blowback's unbelievable. I lose subscribers to my newsletter. So I am not so sure that Really, everybody's on the same page. Let me reiterate. I think a lot of people on the left are blinking, fearful of being criticized themselves for saying there should be no ceasefire. So this, I believe, is problematic. Right now, yes, our government and the Israeli government uh, are not stopping. But the sentiment of the public seems to be the opposite. Look, I think... I think we need to distinguish between what is a difference of policy and actual maliciousness, right? So I think good people can disagree at a certain point over whether there should be a ceasefire or a humanitarian pause or all of the different policy solutions that are out there. I know where I stand uh, and I'm deeply concerned about what a ceasefire in the full sense would mean for Hamas and its ability to continue to attack innocent civilians. And I also know that there are some people who support a ceasefire who I don't agree with, but who also are able to simultaneously condemn Hamas and specifically, most importantly, call out the anti-Semitic ripple effects that we're seeing here at all. And so it's figuring out where those lines are so that we are separating maliciousness from policy disagreements, from ignorance, and from all of those different pieces. Um, it's very easy to conflate everyone who is against us in different forms in, into sort of one big bucket. Um, but at the end of the day, if we distinguish between those who, for example, support a ceasefire but are 
speaking out forcefully against anti-Semitism, speaking out about the importance of Israel um, and its right to exist from those who might just simply be ignorant and are latching on to the easy hashtags and slogans to those who are indeed malicious and are, for example, celebrating Hamas's attack as an act of resistance or celebrating the targeting of Jews to hold them accountable for Israel's actions or anything in between. And so how we, again, really understand that there is complexity there and it's our job to figure out who we are simply disagreeing with, who we can educate, who we can bring along in a way that expands the base of support not just for Israel in this moment, but specifically uh, for oh, our Okay, I, un- I understand all that, but let's dig a little deeper. I constantly hear, we hear this from Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. I'm not against the Jews. I'm not anti-Semitic. It's Israel. Whereas those of us who are Jews listen to a lot of the comments say, this is inherently anti-Semitic. It's yep. like people who say, hey, I'm not racist. And then evidence racist behavior. So yes, you and me both agree you can criticize Israel and its policies and not be anti-Semitic. But many people who are criticizing Israel and its policies who are saying they're not anti-Semitic actually are anti-Semitic. Well, this is this is the entire conversation right now, right? This is exactly what we need to be engaging people on because. Look, I, like a few weeks before October 7th, I was proud to speak outside the UN with other major Jewish leaders protesting the rollback of democracy in Israel. Uh, many people have illustrated how easy it is to criticize Israel and Israeli policy without being anti-Semitic. It's not very hard. The same way we all criticize American, the American government and American policy without fundamentally suggesting that America shouldn't exist um, or engaging in bigoted tropes. Um, What we are seeing now is the ways in which Israel and the Jewish people are conflated. Jewish people, organizations, institutions are targeted for the actions of the Israeli government. Terms like Zionist are used to speak to not simply those who believe in a Jewish homeland, but sort of used in nefarious ways to perpetuate tropes about Jewish control and power. Um, And so how we help people in this moment understand where that line is between criticism of Israel, which is fair and appropriate and protected under the First Amendment, to actual anti-Semitism that directly isolates Jews, leads to violence against Jews, and otherwise seeks to marginalize and isolate our community at this tenuous moment is really important. And that involves a lot of hard conversations. It involves helping people understand why anti-Semitism doesn't just harm Jews, but actually harms all of us by sowing distrust in our democracy, by sowing hatred that can end up targeting so many communities and normalizing extremism at such a tenuous time. And so there's a lot of work that we have to do in that regard. Um, it is specifically the work that we are engaged in at JCPA in terms of building those relationships between communities to better understand how deeply connected our safety is, to better understand 
for example, where the line is between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism, and to understand how these conspiracy theories about Jews and Jewish power so often times are utilized by extremists of different stripes to sow that distrust in our democracy and our society. So, to what degree have you personally experienced anti-Semitism in your life? And since you've been in these public roles in Jewish organizations, has personal anti-Semitic attacks upon you increased or decreased? Um, Well, that is a challenging question. Um, And, you know, frankly, some of the personal details about my life that we're talking about are not things I oftentimes share publicly because of the very real anti-Semitic and extremist threats and uh, security concerns I've had because of the nature of my work. So before I uh, came on as the CEO of JCPA, I led an organization called Integrity First for America. We brought a lawsuit against the neo-Nazis who attacked Charlottesville. And as you could imagine, those neo-Nazis were not so thrilled that we were holding them accountable in court. And it led to some very direct threats against me and my family. Letters sent to my home, email, social media posts, and others directly targeting me, um, singling me out, posting my photo and other identifying details. Um, In fact, in one case, um, I believe I was actually on my honeymoon. I got a call from the FBI saying that they had arrested someone who had been threatening me um, a number of years ago. Um, And so this was all fairly new and jarring for me when it started. Uh, I grew up at a time when Jews felt very safe in America. Um, My grandparents who had come here um, after surviving the Holocaust, um, I think in many ways their hope for their family, it felt like it was coming to fruition, that Jews could live safely and freely in America without real concern for our safety in the way that they lived growing up. And I remember thinking how lucky I was to to live at this specific period of time in this country where I was safe. And in the last 10 years, that has changed dramatically. Uh, you can trace it back to a number of incidents. For me, one of the sharpest moments was Charlottesville, was seeing neo-Nazis with torches emboldened and empowered to chant things like Jews will not replace us and blood and soil, which is an avowed Nazi slogan, and descend on a community surround a synagogue, surround college students, and attack people because of who they are and what they believe. And much like the last few weeks have really exposed a lot of the fissures and challenges that exist in a variety of ways, I think Unite the Right really was a mask-off moment in that violent anti-Semitism became normalized. It became acceptable um, in our society in a way that was frightening um, and that directly helped fuel and spur a broader cycle of extremism that targeted not just the Jewish community and attacks like the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting and the Poway Chabad shooting, but also the Hispanic community in El Paso, the Black community in Buffalo, and a variety of others. And so we've seen this cycle of anti-Semitism over the last decade or so, but particularly the last five to six years, in which it's become increasingly normalized, increasingly permissible on social media with very real world consequences. Um, 
And we know that it makes not just Jews unsafe, but everyone unsafe because of the ways these conspiracy theories operate and directly lead to targeting, again, not just of Jewish people and organizations and institutions, but Black and Hispanic and Muslim and other people who are seen as pawns or tools of the Jewish community in so many of these conspiracies. Now, let's use an analogy of the Me Too movement five years ago. As a result of that, men were told what they could not say. Most men got the memo, but being a man, there are things that are said amongst men that are not written down or not publicized. So therefore, when you expressed an anti-black sentiment, whether you were a sportscaster or other person in the public eye, you literally lost your job. So we know that anti-Semitism has been around for millennia, and we can't sit here and eradicate uh, anti-Semitism with the snap of our fingers. However, and let's be point blank here, to what degree did Trump legitimize anti-Semitism, which then added fuel to the fire? In so many ways, the normalization of anti-Semitism that we've seen in recent years, and I'll say not just anti-Semitism, but broader hate-fueled violence and extremism, came directly from the top. It's not exclusive to Trump. There were these challenges and symptoms that existed before him, but what he did was effectively give license to it. He To tell these extremists, whether they're neo-Nazis in Charlottesville or white supremacists targeting Jews at synagogue, or uh, white supremacists targeting Black people or Hispanic people at their supermarkets, that their views are permissible, that these conspiracy theories about efforts to replace the white race, to change the demographics of our country, to otherwise... Uh, you know, otherwise engage in these sorts of conspiracy theories that we know are fundamentally rooted in anti-Semitism, Trump and a number of other elected officials have effectively normalized them in a way that has made it harder to sort of put the genie back in the bottle. And so we are now going into an election year where we know that these conspiracy theories, these lies, this disinformation these efforts to pit communities against one another and weaponize anti-Semitism um, are only going to get worse. Um, and it's incumbent on everyone, including the media and others, not to buy into that framework, not to help further normalize this anti-Semitism and other forms of extremism, because that's precisely what the goal is here. Um, and make no mistake that it's manifesting in different forms. We see among right-wing politicians like Trump or voices like Tucker Carlson, this normalization of the great replacement theory of other anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the ways in which political violence have been directly connected to belief in these sorts of conspiracy theories. Um, and in turn, that cycle of extremism that's followed from Charlottesville to Pittsburgh to Poway and El Paso and Buffalo and January 6th and beyond. How this intersects with what we're now seeing on college campuses and elsewhere is not that these forms of hate are exactly one and the same, um, but rather the marginalization and isolation of Jewish students on college campuses or in progressive spaces because of 
Israel because of support for Israel or connection to Israel um, serves the purpose of effectively making it harder for us to build the coalitions we need to then take on the increasingly normalized anti-Semitism and white supremacy we're seeing in the other direction. And so both of them are deeply dangerous. Both intend to isolate and marginalize the Jewish community in different ways. Um, And they function differently and require us to confront them differently because they are not the same thing, but they they are in so many ways inextricably linked because of how they function and how in particular um, what we're now seeing in the aftermath of October 7th makes the coalition building and the cross-community relationships we desperately need in this moment to combat increasingly normalized extremism that much harder. Okay. They say there's 35% of the Republican Party who are diehard Trumpers. I hear from people on the right wing all day, every day. And it's very much an us versus them dialogue. The Democratic position has traditionally been get out and vote. Okay, that's a political, but anti-Semitism knows no bombs. How do we penetrate those people who are anti-Semitic by principle? We had an ex-president who said, how can I be anti-Semitic? I have a uh, daughter with Jewish children who converted herself, even though there are comments he made that would belie that. So what's our hope here? Look, I think there's a few things we need to do. First and foremost, I think it's to step back and understand how our democratic norms and institutions and values have been frayed in recent years. And what we're seeing is because of social media, because of the normalization of extremism that we were talking about, the ways in which these things have been giving li- given license at a platform, we need to actually step back and invest in our democratic institutions and our norms. And there's very specific things we can do. At JCPA, we are specifically building out a democracy coalition that brings together these various pieces, whether it be um, the media and digital literacy that we talked about earlier, empowering schools and educators and parents to make sure um, people actually know what's real and what's not on social media, how they are dige- how they are digesting what they get from social media um, with a critical eye, uh, critical lens, um, because of how much of these this bigotry and disinformation spreads that way. It's investing in voting and civil rights work to make sure that the fundamental rights we promise our citizens in this country are protected. It's combating book and curriculum bans that are aimed at Uh, undercutting what students learn and that we know are not just targeting, for example, the history of slavery and white supremacy in this country, but have also now spilled over into curriculum and bans and Holocaust-related books and education. Um, It's protecting our elections through the fundamental tenets of civic engagement, through poll work and all of that. And so we as a society have disinvested from democratic norms and institutions that we know are inherent to keeping communities safe and to combating the sort of polarization and extremism that you're describing. And so if we actually begin to invest in that infrastructure, if we begin to understand how deeply connected are these forms of conspiracy theories and hate are 
um, with attempts to undermine democracy, how they are intentionally utilized to sow distrust in our democracy. And therefore, one of the ways we combat them is to build trust in our democracy, to build up the infrastructure of our democracy. Um, and so that is one thing that all of us can do, no matter who we are and where we live, is really volunteer, invest in, engage in the infrastructure of democracy in our communities. It's also important to help people understand how deeply interconnected these forms of hate are right now, that none of them exist in a silo. We see how anti-Semitism through these great replacement theories fuel um, anti-Black racism, anti-immigrant hate, anti-Muslim hate, anti-LGBTQ hate. Um, and we see the cycle of violence fueled by these conspiracy theories that have targeted so many different communities around this country, no matter who they are, um, Black, Hispanic, Jewish, and so on. And we also know that in this moment, we are seeing, for example, neo-Nazis recruit off of the anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans events that we're seeing. We're seeing them try to utilize the abortion debate to recruit. And so all of this tells us that our safety is deeply interconnected, even at a moment when we see extremists trying to tell us that this is zero sum, that somehow fighting anti-Semitism is going to come at the expense of the safety of other communities. The fighting Islamophobia is going to come out at the expense of Jewish safety or other communities' safety. And we first need to get out of the zero sum framework and understand that tackling hate in all forms keeps all of us safe and makes all of us safer. Um, and recognize that it's not, that all of our safety is actually deeply interconnected at the end of the day. And if we are to take on um, any form of hate, it requires taking on all of these forms of hate because of the ways in which they intersect um, at this particularly tenuous moment where conspiracy theories rooted in so many different forms of bigotry are increasingly normalized. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. So tell me about your involvement and what you did in Charlottesville. So, you know, I, at the time when Unite the Right happened, when the violence in Charlottesville happened, I was working in the New York Attorney General's office leading communications and policy. I was grateful to be in that office. We were on the front lines of a lot of the efforts to protect Americans from the policy of of the Trump administration, the Muslim ban, appeal of DACA, and so many others that were I'm deeply at odds with our fundamental civil rights and the values on which this country was built. And when Unite the Right happened, it really felt like, again, a mask off moment when so much that had been simmering under the surface that had been emboldened particularly by the president and others um, was all of a sudden given license to parade violently down our streets, to attack students, to espouse the most vile anti-Semitic and racist ideas, and then, of course, to culminate in the deadly attack on a community that led to Heather Heyer's death and the injury of so many others. And so when some lawyers I knew from my prior work reached out and said, hey, we're, we'd like to sue the neo-Nazis. Are you interested in working with we're, us? We're a little bit slower. At this time, you're no longer working in the AG's office? I was working in the AG's office, and I got a call from um, some of the lawyers who ultimately brought the case, Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn, um, who said, We're, we want to sue the Nazis. Are you interested in working with us? Uh, and I don't know what else I could have done in that moment, but say yes. Okay, just so I understand, there's an organization, Integrity for America. Where does that fit into this? So Integrity First for America, the organization I ran, was created to really support this lawsuit. Okay. Um, to serve as the vehicle um, for which we were able to move this lawsuit forward. Um, as you can imagine, even with tons of pro bono legal work, uh, donated legal work, there are many expenses related to coordinating a lawsuit of this size. We had five law firms across the board that Okay, wait, let me, let's, go, let's go back a little um, bit slower. You get these calls, you say, I'm in. What's the next step? So I, uh, I came on as the executive director of Integrity First, The lawsuit had been filed um, on behalf of nine community members who were injured in the violence. Just a little bit slower. Did you give up your job at the AG's office? I did. So I I did. So I left the AG's office, um, which, uh, you know, was, was, was sad because I'm a deep believer in the power of state AGs and local government. But I think to be um, on the front lines of this fight at a moment of rising extremism and anti-Semitism was was more meaningful than I probably um, anticipated it would be. Okay, you get the call from the lawyers. 
Did they already have the nine plaintiffs or did you go to find the nine plaintiffs? Correct. So the legal team had been on the ground in the immediate aftermath of Unite the Right um, and had connected to a number of folks, ultimately nine Charlottesville community members who were injured in the violence. The bravest people I know, people who, um, for example, two friends of Heather Heyer, um, who had been with her that day, marching peacefully down the street against white supremacy in their community. Um, Heather, of course, was murdered by the car in the car attack. Um, Marissa and Marcus were um, severely injured but survived. People like Natalie Romero and Devin Willis, who were UVA students at the time, University of Virginia students, who were first surrounded and attacked during the torch march on Friday night. Um, on their college campus by a bunch of Nazis. And then somehow Natalie also ended up hit directly by the car the next day and suffered, among other things, a fractured skull. Um, And so nine people all together who had shown up to peacefully protest white supremacists descending on their campus, on their town, and were grievously injured as a result. And what became clear very quickly was that what happened was no accident. The social media chats that came out in the weeks and days after Unite the Right, uh, including specifically chats from the social media site Discord, showed that the violence was actually planned long in advance, that there were discussions about hitting protesters with cars and then claiming self-defense. And that, again, what happened was no accident, but rather intended to violently attack people based on who they are their race, their religion, and their willingness to stand up for the rights of their neighbors. And so that is not speech. That is not a clash between different sides. That's a racist, anti-Semitic, violent conspiracy, and we have laws meant to protect against that. And specifically, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit with our team um, brought a case under a number of federal and state statutes aimed at protecting uh protecting people's civil rights and fundamental rights in the face of violent hate. Um, One of these statutes, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, is precisely what it sounds like. An over 150-year-old statute created to protect recently freed slaves from Klan violence in the South um, that has been used a number of times throughout history to hold people accountable for their violent extremism, and that in the year 2023 is somehow having a bit of a resurgence because of the uptick in violent hate that we've seen. Um, And so this lawsuit in so many ways really became a preview, not much like the Charlottesville violence was, of how you hold accountable violent extremism at a time when it was hitting record levels. Um, there's so much to say about the case. And oh, the trial. I want to hear something. Okay, you found the plaintiffs. How did you find exactly who to sue? Great question. So there was a very lucky break early on. Um, a site called Unicorn Riot, which is a nonprofit journalism site, um, published these Discord chats, these social media chats, in which so much of the planning of the violence happened. And in these chats, they had all these different channels illustrating every or uh, engaging people around everything from transportation to, you know, what to eat for lunch to weapons to different plans. And from those chats, it became very clear sort of who was in charge versus who was simply there showing up. 
Um, and ultimately, the legal team was able to identify 24 defendants, some of them individuals, some of them hate groups, names like Richard Spencer, who you might know as the guy who coined the term alt-right and circa 2017 was sort of the leading neo-Nazi uh, in America, uh, groups like League of the South, certain KKK groups, National Socialist Movement, Identity Europa, and others. And specifically using those chats, um, which again, was a lucky break. You don't quite, you don't really get discovery that early in most lawsuits. Um, and of course, our team subsequently subpoenaed Discord and other social media sites for um, the full chats. But through those initial leaks, we were able to identify who these defendants were, who these key organizers were, and name them in the lawsuit um, in a way that, unlike most litigation, uh, you don't have that level of detail beforehand. Okay. You serve these people in organizations. I'm following it very externally in the news, uh, what's going on in Virginia. In the bubble, what was the reaction to the lawsuit? Among the neo-Nazis or among... Everybody. What did you feel? Once it was filed, what, what did you see in the landscape? Well, I think it became very clear very quickly that Charlottesville wasn't an isolated incident. And so the importance of this lawsuit became even more impactful, right? So within a year of Charlottesville, we had, for example, the Pittsburgh attack, uh, in which 11 Jews were murdered in synagogue by a white supremacist who espoused many of the same ideas as the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. A few months later, the Christchurch attack in New Zealand. A month or so after that, the Poway attack in California. Uh, a few months after that, the El Paso attack, uh, and so on. And the ways in which we saw what felt fringe in Charlottesville, these idea, this idea of Jews will not replace us, the conspiracy theories, the avowed anti-Semitism and white supremacy, all of a sudden become increasingly normalized and emboldened on a national level. And those attacks were happening in parallel to elected officials and pundits like Tucker Carlson and others giving license to those ideas in mainstream forum, uh, it made that lawsuit all the more important. And so at first, you know, there was, there was certainly some attention when it was filed, but as I started my work at Integrity First, it was a little challenging to get people to understand why this was something that they needed to care about, to support, to engage in. And it, and it very quickly became clear that Charlottesville really was a harbinger of all of the extremism that has followed of this increasingly normalized hate and disinformation and bigotry that has taken over so much of our political rhetoric and our society more broadly. And so having this case not simply as a means to hold accountable those responsible for the violence, but to put a clear marker down that there will be consequences for this sort of bigotry, to create a model for what that accountability looks like, which it has since become with a number of January 6th and other cases modeled on it, um, and to just really expose and lay bare the violence and the hate at the core of this movement was deeply important. And it was heartening to see people recognize that as the case went on, as we went from filing the lawsuit through uh, the various stages, including, um, you know, surviving the motion to dismiss in which a, the judge made clear that this was not free speech uh, and that free speech doesn't protect violence. 
and then into, you know, the pretrial discovery phase when our attorneys were traveling the country deposing neo-Nazis um, and otherwise um, moving this case towards trial, which ultimately happened in fall of 2021. Okay, so tell us about the trial. So, uh, the trial itself was about four weeks in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, certainly, you know, if for me it was impactful and traumatic and stressful, I can only imagine what it was like for our plaintiffs, these nine people who survived the unthinkable in 2017 and chose to relive that in service of holding accountable the neo-Nazis and extremists responsible. Um, Notably, some of the defendants actually represented themselves, specifically Richard Spencer and Chris Cantwell, two very prominent neo-Nazis. And this meant that at this trial, they were not represented by lawyers and were the ones who were directly not just giving their own opening and closing statements, um, but actually cross-examining our witnesses, which included the plaintiffs. So cross-examining the very people whom they attacked. Um, And it became very clearly, as we expected, that those defendants, and frankly, some of the lawyers representing other neo-Nazis, were intent on using the trial to try to uh, further normalize and desensitize people to bigotry and hate. They would make uh, Holocaust jokes on the stand. They would use the N-word in court. They would sort of harass and terrorize our plaintiffs on the stand, trying to get them to, you know, expose or dox their friends who they were with, and then would simultaneously have their supporters and social media trying to dox these people. Um, And so it was a very deliberate effort by these defendants, and in fact, one of their lawyers said as much after the trial, to really desensitize the jury and all those listening on to this sort of hate, to make it seem like this is just normal stuff. And therefore, they shouldn't be held accountable for it. Um, But our team put forward, I think, a a very clear and comprehensive recounting of the facts, which is that these neo-Nazis plan for violence in extensive detail, again, down to discussions of whether they could hit protesters with cars and claim self-defense, which is precisely what happened. They went to Charlottesville with the intent to engage in that violence, they engaged in that violence, leading to Heather Heyer's death and the, and the injury of so many others. And then they celebrated that violence. And so what was heartening was that at the end of the day, the jury didn't buy the defendant's efforts to desensitize them. And they found every defendant liable to the tune of multi-million dollar verdicts. Well, needless to say, some of these people were held to these multi-million dollar verdicts, but they're quasi-judgment proof. But what was particularly heartening even before trial was the impact this has had on the defendants themselves. So people like Richard Spencer, who was at the time the most prominent neo-Nazi in the country, said before trial that this case has effectively bankrupted him. Then we've seen how this case has marginalized and bankrupt so many key leaders of the white supremacist movement who were prominent six years ago and now have been wholly sort of pushed to the side um, and diminished in, in this. And so it shows the importance of accountability, that if you actually hold these extremists accountable, there are very real consequences, even before trial, even before the judgments. That being said, the judgments mean that they will effectively be followed around for the rest of their lives, garnishing wages, putting liens on their home, 
seizing assets and making it impossible for them to sort of rebuild any of the infrastructure that led to this extremism in the first place. And so that is really the point of litigation like this, to illustrate the consequences. It's not necessarily to collect millions and millions and millions of dollars instantaneously. And I think our plaintiffs went into this knowing that they wouldn't necessarily be getting those millions of dollars instantaneously, but rather to make clear the power of accountability and consequences at a time when there has been so few. Okay, you mentioned one six, and it certainly is direct. So you establish, those of us in the legal world know to establish a precedent to get a ruling is very important. But one six, there was a lot of attention more than in Charlottesville. We saw it with our own eyes. Yet we have people like Tucker Carlson and others saying, no, really, it was just a picnic. Yeah, well, look, here's the difference between Charlottesville and January 6th. There's actually been accountability for January 6th. And so post-Charlottesville, one of the reasons we thought our lawsuit was so important is that the DOJ, which was led by, at the point, Jeff Sessions under Trump, the Trump administration, was unlikely to hold accountable those responsible for the violence. And that's largely borne out. Post-January 6th, it's been a different ballgame. There has actually been, of course, hundreds of prosecutions that have come out of what happened that day. There have also been civil lawsuits, including, I think, three or four that are explicitly modeled on the Charlottesville case that have been moving forward in which the court, the judge, have specifically cited the Charlottesville case and allowing them to move forward. And so we've seen sort of much broader accountability post-January 6th in a way that we didn't see after Charlottesville, which is important, shows us that progress is possible, that our systems can work in the way that we need them to. But of course, as we head into 2024, rightfully so, we're hearing, many of us are deeply concerned about what next year will mean for democracy, for accountability, at a time when one of the people most directly responsible for January 6th is the leader of uh, a major party and could very well Uh, take back the White House. And so how we not allow in the coming weeks and months these ideas that fueled January 6th in the first place and the idea that it was anything other than an act of violent extremism, how we don't allow that to become normalized is going to be even more important than ever. Telling the story of what happened, what came out of the January 6th commission is so important for that reason. The prosecutions are so important for that reason and continuing to make crystal clear what this actually was, which was not, you know, a tourist visit, which was not a picnic, which was not a peaceful protest. It was an act of violent extremism. And there must be broad accountability for that in every sense of the word. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. 
From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Okay, let's go back to anti-Semitism directly. If one is a Jew, there's been this uh, great assimilation, which you referenced earlier. What can you tell a Jew when confronted on a personal level with anti-Semitism, whether it be direct comments to them, acts, when it comes up in discussion, what should Jews do or say? So I think it's important to understand where that anti-Semitism is coming from, right? Because sometimes anti-Semitism is avowedly malicious and horrific. It's the swastika on your synagogue. It's the it's the snide comment walking down the street about your nose or something like that. And other times, to sort of where we started this conversation, it's an offhand comment about Jews and money or landlords or something like that, that might not even be meant maliciously. And so first and foremost, like with all everything that we're talking about here, stepping back and understanding where is this coming from and what is the intent um, so that we can actually address it. In in cases of avowed, clear, malicious anti-Semitism, I'm not sure it's frankly worth engaging, right? Um, but in many cases, there is key education and engagement that we can do to help people understand why their comments are hurtful and further problematic tropes and conspiracy theories that make Jews unsafe and they make all of us unsafe. And understanding how, whether it be how criticism of Israel can in certain cases morph into avowed anti-Semitism, why those specific tropes around Jews and money and control can further anti-Semitism and having those conversations with people who are open to learning and hearing actually matters. And everything tells us that that sort of one-on-one engagement 
is most effective um, as it relates to those issues. I think more broadly, the goal of anti-Semites is to make us feel like we can't live proudly as Jews. And our responsibility is to make sure that they don't succeed. And so one of the most important things we can do is continue to safely and smartly, but still enormously proudly, live as Jews, go to synagogue, go to youth group, engage in all of the ways you want to engage with your Jewish community, with your Jewish identity. Because precisely what these anti-Semites hope to do with the attacks on synagogues, the bomb threats, the swastikas, the, uh, the broader normalized extremism that we're seeing is to make us feel like we can't live our lives the way that we're supposed to. That is the goal of terrorism and that is the goal of hate. And so one of the things that all of us can do is continue to lean in proudly and clearly to our Jewish community and our Judaism in whichever ways we choose. Okay, but let's be very specific. Not me, but someone is in a group of people and someone said, uh, oh, I Jewed him down on that. Now, I've been taught from day one, you immediately speak up, and I do. But there are many people who say, oh, I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable. I have something to lose. I don't want to be labeled. This is my business. We see this on a macro level. We see it on universities who are afraid to make a statement. But let's start with the personal. What should people do in those circumstances? Call it out, full stop. There is no reason why we shouldn't be calling this out, because if we don't call it out, it becomes normalized. It's the lack of accountability, whether it's on the personal level or the national level, to connect the dots between everything we're talking about, that has led to hate and bigotry being normalized in this country. So all of us have an obligation to call it out. We as Jews should absolutely call it out, but the hope is also that our, our neighbors our colleagues, our friends are calling it out and how we're empowering them to understand why something like that is anti-Semitic so that they can actually speak up on our behalf. And it's not just on us to protect our own community, but on all of us to protect all of our communities is going to be even more important in the weeks and months ahead. And so I'm firmly in the camp that it should be called out. Um, we could do it in certain cases, again, understanding where people are coming from, calling people in and helping them understand why what they said is problematic, as opposed to automatically assuming it came from an, an entirely malicious place. There are absolutely those who are engaging in full-fledged malicious anti-Semitism in this moment. And I think that's a clear red line. But there are also those who are inadvertently engaging in anti-Semitism without fully recognizing what they're doing, without recognizing its impact, without recognizing the pain it causes. And we can absolutely call it out and engage them. But let's go back to the universities, which have gotten a lot of uh, ink publicity, where the, you know, Penn being a big example, Harvard being a big example, where the people who run these institutions will condemn everything, but what goes on with Israel and Jews, or, you know, reverse, they'll condemn Israel but they'll let anybody else say anything. Now, we have people like Rowan at Apollo who are standing up with their money. These are big donors. But how do we turn things around? Forget the students. We have a lot of elderly college presidents who are not standing up for Israel and Jews. So this has been something I've been 
you know, both personally and professionally been thinking a lot about in the last few weeks. And I've been fortunate to be a part of a few meetings with the Department of Education and the Secretary of Education as part of a small group of Jewish leaders who met with him and the second gentleman a few weeks ago. And there's two sides to this coin in terms of what we need to be doing. There is the support that needs to be provided to college campuses for them to understand how they are actually creating campuses where students are free to practice religion, where we are creating inclusive environments where Jewish students and all students feel like they could learn in a safe, supportive environment. And there's a number of things that can be done in that regard. But also the flip side of that is the pressure point. It's the carrot and the stick. And so under Title VI, which is a civil rights statute, Jews are entitled to be in an to be in schools, to be in an environment where their fundamental rights are protected, the same as any other community. And if schools are not enforcing those fundamental rights and protecting those fundamental rights, it's then on the federal government to hold them accountable through these Title VI complaints. And so specifically, there have been a number of asks by those of us in the Jewish community in recent weeks to surge resources into the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Ed so that they can more effectively and efficiently process these complaints, for them to provide direct guidance to universities and colleges in addition to K-12 schools, reminding them of their civil rights obligations and the seriousness of uh, enforcing um, Title VI. Um, and to make the ability to submit a complaint um, even uh, even easier. Um, and so we've seen some steps taken from the Department of Ed. Um, in fact, just before I joined you, I was on a call with some um, some education department officials where they shared some additional updates, including how they, for example, for the first time ever updated the form to specifically make clear that it applies to anti-Semitism, to people of Israeli and Palestinian origin, um, or any of the other identities that have um, very specifically been targeted on campuses in the last um, five weeks. And so there's two sides to this coin. There is the support that we should be providing to make sure university presidents, administrators, faculty are able to create free and inclusive and safe environments. And when they can't do that, there is the pressure and the accountability that our federal government um, can undertake to ensure that they're living up to their obligations. Now, the most influential people in America are celebrities. Celebrities seem to take a stand on everything but this. Amy Schumer took a stand. She's excoriated every day. What do you tell celebrities? Well, I think... There are many celebrities who I've seen uh, taking an important stand on this in the last few weeks. I think, again, the loudest voices tend to get outsized attention. And so those who have said the wrong things, who have uh, either not shown up in allyship or who have engaged in, uh, you know, hateful, uh, disinformation-fueled posts, might get outsized attention. Um, but I've seen actually a number of celebrities, whether it be signing letters or otherwise engaging on this, that have stood up with the Jewish community, that have stood up for Israel, that have said, we might not agree with everything Israel is doing. We might not agree with this Israeli government. We might not agree with every action of the IDF, but we can agree that Israel has a right to defend itself, that Hamas is a terrorist organization, that the hostages must be free, and that 
the Jewish people in this moment are facing very real and severe ripple effects as it relates to anti-Semitism here in the States. And so what it means for celebrities or frankly anyone to show up in allyship with the Jews right now doesn't have to necessarily look exactly the same from person to person, but rather having those baselines, recognizing that we're not expecting them to support and agree with the Israeli government or everything that the IDF necessarily does. I know I personally do not, but I can still say that I support Israel and its right to defend itself. I'm horrified by Hamas and its brutal terror attack. The hostages absolutely must be freed um, and that the anti-Semitism that is coming out of this in, uh, in, in massive waves as a result of this broader crisis is unacceptable and have no, has no place here. And how we engage and empower people to do that, to hit those baselines, to make those points, even as they might disagree on a variety of different policy issues, um, is going to be most important. And I just hope that people will continue to show up and call this out because what we're seeing right now um, is how Jews and Jewish institutions and others in the United States are being targeted here simply because they're Jewish under the guise of protesting the actions of the Israeli government. And it makes having people use their bully pulpits, whether it be celebrities or government officials or others, that much more important. Because again, anti-Semitism operates in these very insidious ways. There's the obvious swastikas on synagogues, but it's these conspiracy theories, this coded language, the more insidious ways anti-Semitism operates that makes those using their bully pulpit to call it out that much more urgent. And what about corporations? There's so much that corporations can do. Um, so I've been engaging with some of them. I've done workshops for some of them. Um, there are many of my colleagues who have done the same. First and foremost, understanding anti-Semitism in the context of your broader DEI work is important, right? Attacks on Jews, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and threats against Jews must be understood as part of your broader obligation to keep your employees safe, full stop. Um, but there's also a lot of education and work that needs to be done in this moment, your employees are probably struggling right now. I know that for me, I even do this professionally, but it's been a really painful five plus weeks. You can't escape the pain and the horror of this moment. Um, first, with again, the, the the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust on October 7th and all of these sort of intergenerational trauma that, that triggered for so many of us. And then the ripple effects of the anti-Semitism around the globe that has all of us fearful and isolated. And so corporations, just like universities and so many other entities, have a responsibility to make sure that their employees are safe at work and hopefully to create environments that address this very real pain and fear that many are feeling, to empower their colleagues to understand what they're going through. And this cuts in multiple directions. The Jewish community is not alone right now in this pain and fear. We've seen very real instances of Islamophobia and anti-Arab hate, including the murder of a six-year-old um, Palestinian-American boy in Chicago a few weeks ago. And so all of these, and all of these corporations um, and any other entity can do a lot to create safer spaces within their offices, within their um, organizations that recognize the challenge of this moment and that seek to um, make employees feel like they are welcome 
um, and that their fears and their concerns will be heard if there is an incident. I grew up, my parents constantly talked about anti-Semitism and where Jews were in the world and never forget your Jewish identity. So in light of what happened in October, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? Where's the optimism? Why should I feel upbeat like things are going in the right direction? Yeah. Well, look, I find two places for optimism. One, again, it's easy for the loudest voices to get outsized attention, and they rightfully should be called out and held accountable, as we've been talking about. But for every you know, person who has tweeted something heinous and awful or screamed something terrible at a protest— there are so many others who have either shown up in allyship with our community, who have put out statements of support, who have rallied in different ways for Israel or for the Jewish community, um, elected officials, state legislative black caucuses, labor unions, so many others who are actually out there saying that they stand in solidarity with this, with the Jewish people at this moment of deep pain. And so we need to keep finding those bright spots and amplifying those people who are actually showing up for us. Because again, the goal of extremists is to make us feel like we are isolated and alone. And by, you know, it's very easy to do so when there are those loud, horrific voices out there and how we actually lift up the voices of allyship is our key, um, is key. Second, I think, you know, this has really put a fine point on just how urgent this crisis is. And I'm having conversations that maybe five or six weeks ago wouldn't have been possible with people who are understanding that they need to do more and do better on anti-Semitism in its various forms, that are looking for ways to actually invest in and rebuild the sort of the broader work on anti-Semitism that we need. And I think specifically, sort of from my perch at JCPA, the community relations that we know are inextricably linked with the broader fight against anti-Semitism. If we are not in deep relationship with our neighbors, educating, empowering, talking to them about anti-Semitism, their obligation to fight it, and how anti-Semitism makes all of us less safe, all of our communities, our democracy, um, less safe and less stable, um, it's harder to expect these people to be showing up for us in moments like this. And so... I'm having conversations with people who are seeing the importance of this work for the first time, um, who are seeking to work with us to build coalitions as we head into 2024. And we know that so much is on the line for so many of our communities. There's actually an opportunity to rebuild and strengthen some of these relationships between communities that might have been frayed or strained in the last few weeks because we know that with so much at stake, we have no obligation but continue. But to build coalitions and find ways to work together, however possible. There are certainly red lines there. There are people who have, I think, made crystal clear um, that this is not about disagreement on Israel, but rather clear and explicit anti-Semitism. And I don't see it a way for us to work with those people. But I think that for the vast majority of Americans, for the vast majority of partners, um, we are able to find a path forward that recognizes our shared future and our safety is being inextricably linked because, again, going into next year with democracy at stake, with extremism increasingly normalized, we have no obligation but to build those coalitions and to find those paths forward. 
Well, Amy, you're certainly a bright spot doing God's work, literally. I want to thank you so much for taking this time with my audience. Thank you so much for having me. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.